Yeah, new dog. Yeah, what, what, type, what kind of dog? Uh, no idea. He's like a pound pup. Okay. Um, looks like a tiny cocker spaniel yeah. or papillon, some people have said, which is a breed I've never heard of before, yeah. but he's more well-behaved than I am. <laughs> so like my girlfriend and I, our whole MO is just not to ruin him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's old. Damn, that's, that's, that's cool, man. Congrats. Um, yeah, new pets can be... Uh, not can be, they literally always are stressful, um, like in terms of just like, I guess, getting used to life with them and them getting used to you. Is... And yeah, I was throwing the dog under the bus being late, but that forgetting like, oh yeah, you have to walk them. Oh yeah, you have to do this. Like, yeah, it was more me not planning my life. Oh dude, if I had dogs, oh my God, or kids, I would blame everything on them. Oh, I wish, I <laughs> wish, man, dude. But um, anyway, man, it's yeah, it's great to have you here, man. Of course, uh, you know, shout out to Michael. Um, he's the one who told me about you, and um, but yeah, you know, uh, you want to take a second and introduce yourself. Cool. Uh, my name is Alexander Burke. Uh, do you just kind of want? Dude, it can be like you know the things you've done professionally, <clears throat> or it could be like my favorite cheese is Gouda. Okay. Uh, I mean, my favorite cheese actually is constantly changing. It's usually whatever cheese I'm eating is my favorite. Uh, in terms of my background, I'm probably, I just played with Bob Dylan. I was his, um, keyboard player in Shadow Kingdom, which was his recent concert film, which was amazing. I'm in the middle of scoring The Blue Rose, which is, uh, George Dalton's, or George Barron, George Barron's directorial debut. Um, that's his IMDb, thanks to multiple people having certain names. Uh, it's produced by Jay Van Hoy, who produced The Witch and The Lighthouse and Beginners and stars Olivia Scott Welch and a bun- Ray Wise and a bunch of great people. And uh, I, that's actually why I have to be home by 3.30. We're in the final <laughs> end of scoring. We just picture log, so it's super exciting. Yeah. But I musical direct the MTV Movie Awards, played with Buble for his Christmas special. Uh Worked. I got my star as a musical director and actor with Second City, so I work a lot in the comedy world, scored and played for tons of comedy shows, oh, yeah. and session player and film composer, and just kind of been a bit of everywhere, from producing Garfunkel Notes to recording Dane Cook records, playing with Margaret Cho, to recording with people like Dionne Warwick and Dylan and Fiona Apple and stuff like that. Yeah. So, oh man, that's funny. Uh, it's like story about Dane Cook. I um I. When I, when I was like on Clubhouse, like every day, <laughs> like we all were during yeah. the three months of the yeah. pandemic. Literally, like there was like three good months where I was like, I gotta be on Clubhouse. And um, Dane, he like uh, he'll like have like open, um, I guess kind of like discussions. And uh, I guess the time that he like <clears throat> uh, you know gave me a, a chance to talk, and I mentioned I was a tuba player. He literally stopped me and was like, Nah, man. Like before you continue, like you have to play the tuba on this clubhouse. So <laughs> yeah, I played, uh, what was it, like a Beatles bass line on, on, on like, a, the, and you know, like the, the sound quality on clubhouse is trash. I know. So, <laughs> so like, like tuba going through that, probably lagging, like it, it was just, but he was just like, cool, man. Sounds good. But anyway, that's my, Dane uh, Cook story. my favorite, what my favorite moment on stage was Dane cook <laughs> where we were doing a record at the laugh factory and essentially it was isolated incident. And he would, 
he's the one of the hardest working people I've ever met, and he would mm. go almost every day, and we'd record the sets, and it would be all unannounced. Yeah. And it'd be in prep, <clears throat> and a lot of those are on the documentary in the making of before he did the full thing. And one day Chappelle shows up, and Chappelle's like, I'm going to smoke two pa- packs of cigarettes, and I'm just going to talk, not do routine, and none of y'all are going to leave because I'm Chappelle, and you're going to want to see what I do. And Dane was literally like, yeah, I'm going home. And (laughs) Dane's like, he's like, you know, paying you, but we're calling it off, packing up his stuff. And then Chappelle, all he wanted to do was talk to the audience like this podcast. Mm -hmm. And someone asks him who his favorite comedian is. He's like, yeah, I like, you know, Carla, this guy, Dane Cook. And this dude's like, Dane Cook's a fucking asshole. (laughs) So Dane's like, cool. Actually, we're staying. (laughs) And he like, we ordered dinner and we hang out. I was like, I think Chappelle went like two and a half hours. Yeah. Literally was m- mid-sentence when his last cigarette ended, just stopped talking, walked off stage. <laughs> and then they announced, we got one more guest, Dane Cook. And Dane had called like a stretch limo. He just walks down the stairs, points out the points to the guy, just says, go fuck yourself, <laughs> throws the mic down, had the backstage open to reveal this over-the-top like Kardashian-esque limo yeah. that he just walked into. Oh my God. And that was the entire been like standing ovation. The yeah. audience went mental. Jesus, man, he, he's such a um, uh, he's such a like anti celebrity. It's funny, like 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 he's just one of those guys. He's just especially um, I guess hearing him like because uh, like his clubhouse chats are basically like him like um, it's like the mad scientist version like a mad scientist that like sees like something coming that's gonna like end the world before everyone else but like the comedian version of that yeah so he just he's just like going <laughs> these rants and um god his his love-hate relationship with hollywood is hilarious but anyway before this turns into a, a dane cook episode because it's <laughs> funny there i've there's he's a uh, um i don't know why he, he always just like randomly pops up and, and stuff but anyway man um well that's cool all this stuff that, that you're you're doing it's uh, obviously you know i want to dive into that um but i guess before um you know i with every artist i'm always interested in like how they got their start like why you know maybe you chose a specific route or instrument but yeah uh i mean i do this because i don't have a choice mm. Uh, whenever I teach a master class or anything, I constantly tell everyone to quit. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's the hardest life possible. Everything terrible that you could imagine that will happen to you will. And in the most unexpected ways that are worse than you could imagine. Um, but I love it more than anything else in the world. Mm. And there's nothing I enjoy even one one hundredth as much as doing music, doing art. Mm. And I think unless you're wired that way, um, for the love of God, don't do this. It's the most insane, (laughs) backwards, crazy job you can possibly have. Um, But if you have that passion, you have no way out. Mm. And that's the big secret is the people who I find who make it are the ones who give themselves no escape plan, Mm. Uh, which I do not have any escape plan. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, the closest thing I have to an escape plan is having a few um, very, very pricey bits of vintage gear that I could sell if (laughs) things go really bad. But that's essentially my little escape plan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I got my start because my next door neighbor was a piano player and a few years older than me. Mm. So when you're eight and he's 12, you look up to them. 
And my first piano teacher said I should be a pianist. And within uh, a couple weeks, I got a job that paid me a hundred bucks a show playing at a mall, which was pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to see Jerry Lee Lewis and I wound up meeting, I grew up in LA mm-hmm. in Orange County. I wound up meeting Drake Bell mm-hmm. when I was 14 or 15. We were both trying to get backstage to meet Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Drake from Drake and Josh and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was just starting a band, and I wound up being his keyboard player in his band. So I'm 14, 15, and then playing keyboards for just a little bit, and immediately on Nickelodeon, playing big shows at the Palladium and on TV. And to me, it's like, well, that's what happens. You start a band, and <laughs> three months later, you're on TV. That's normal. <laughs> it never, it, it took me about 10 years to realize how not normal that experience yeah. was. Yeah. Um, quit the band to go to college, although. Um, Still play with Drake whenever I can. Usually I play every year with him for his Christmas show. Um, but quit to go to college and then wound up getting hired by Second City when I was 18. And I was lucky enough that, like, you know, I was playing with people like Keegan-Michael Key and Thomas Middleditch and Jordan Peele and really amazing people um, at my time at Second City, which kind of led me to composing a lot in comedy and composing for a lot of Second City stuff and mm-hmm. Improv Olympic and Baby Wants Candy and other stuff like that. Kind of moved to New York for a hot second to be a jazz musician, was jazz vibraphone player, was playing vibes in Chicago as well besides piano, and then uh, wound up getting a job with Hans Zimmer in L.A., which brought me back. Uh, got fired my first day because I was super anti-computers. Um, I was like, you know, one of those... 20-year-olds who are like, screw computers, they're BS. I'm going to write all of my notation by hand with a calligraphy pen. Mm. I didn't even know what Logic or Pro Tools was. And so when they're like, oh, we need to cut these symbols and turn them to ESX instruments. I'm like, what's ESX? Like VST player and Logic? What's VST? What's Logic? They're like, aren't you like 23? I'm like, (laughs) yeah, what's your point? They're like, 23-year-olds should know how to do this. Yeah. And, And for context, what year is this? Oh, seven. Okay. Or oh, six. So that, I guess that's like a couple years ahead of the time where like everything like really, I guess like everyone in music really fully accepted like things just going completely digital. It's like a couple years ahead, I guess. Yeah. So I just turned 39. Okay. And I was, to my knowledge, the last generation that we actually had to take calligraphy classes. We had to learn how to notate with calligraphy pens yeah. and how to, wow. how to do really beautiful orchestrations by hand. So I got to be that weird generation where we couldn't cite the internet still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my undergrad was in 05 when I finished. So I tried to cite the internet and got in trouble for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, so, that's so interesting because that's such a that, – like uh, the, the – it's tough because like – the the difference in years with uh, technology, it, three four years makes a in the last twenty years makes a huge huge difference and the the difference between like the accessibility like financially um, like to be able to have like a high functioning enough Mac that can like legitimately compose without like just totally slowing down like it was. It, like oh seven oh six that's still a time where like it would not be weird for someone to be like yeah like I can't either I can't afford that or I like I don't see the point of like having such a powerful machine you know well and it seemed like BS like oh you have to spend twenty grand for Pro Tools at that time yeah that's and or if you bought the cheap version of Pro Tools they gave you that Digio two. <laughs> 
which sounded like crap and you had to do like a black line mod or something. Mm. <clears throat> and I, I had Digio to the black line mod for years. If anyone out there knows what that means. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that that's crazy. So, so what I guess, um, so I guess going back to the Hans Zimmer bit, um, cause like, I feel like, and for people listening that are non-musicians, I think, um, it's probably worth like trying to like find the equivalent in like um, Hans Zimmer to composers in LA would be like one of the top lawyers in like a top law firm. It'd be you know? like it'd be like saying I was interning for Biden. Yeah, it's like basically. that. It's like that <laughs> level for musicians. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was like my aunt's husband's friend was his lawyer's room husband's roommate it was like a weird connection how i got it but the connection wasn't deep enough to make him put in the effort to (laughs) keep me that's that's so so and i guess so it's it's interesting because i i can imagine regardless of how you feel about like the opportunity itself or han zimmer uh personally obviously like uh, I'm curious, like, what, what was, like, your mental state after, like, I guess in the moment, in, like, days or weeks after that? Uh, depression. <laughs> <laughs> Just p- pure depression because, yeah. um, so my undergrad was essentially double on vibraphone and piano. Mm-hmm. And I loved composing, but I also wanted to be a jazz vibraphone player and didn't, had moved out to here and didn't have the money to go back to New York or Chicago. Mm-hmm. And growing up in L.A. and being in the scene in L.A., I had no desire to be here. Mm. It was like kind of, it felt like moving back in with my parents, who I was not living with. But by the time I came out here, I had no money. And my life in Chicago was amazing. And I was gigging nonstop in New York and always there and had this amazing life, feeling like I was going to be the next Mill Jackson or Lionel Hampton, Mm -hmm. and felt like I kind of had the rug pulled out from me and this amazing life I had built got stolen from me mm. and didn't have the money to go back and didn't know what I was going to do and was pretty angry and miserable. Yeah. So then I guess what what's the, where in that journey is like the beginning of like mm. the, like back to the drawing board phase? Like what was your next move? So um, my dad and has a lot of degrees and was having multiple degrees was a very important thing, mm. uh, which I don't care about. But essentially he was said, if you apply to USC's film scoring program, and if you don't get in, I will loan you the money, uh, which I was never, would have never paid back to <laughs> go back to Chicago or New York. So I was like, fine, I'll do this. And I so didn't want to go to USC I actually wrote three pieces of music that were all big band arrangements, which I still have and love, Mm. that (laughs) were not what they wanted from me. Mm. And I had to get some letters of recommendation. So, And by the way, I had a CGPA from undergrad because I was touring with Second City. I missed so many classes. Mm. So I'm like, I have a CGPA. I'm writing the exact opposite music that they want. There's no way in hell I'll get into USC. (laughs) And... I had to get some letters of recommendation, and one of them I got was from Dan Backadall, who's a good friend of mine who I toured with. Dan Backadall was, um, he's kind of the bald, angry dude who's in everything. <laughs> uh, kind of like curmudgeon like, 
guy. He was in Legit, if you ever saw that show. No, no, I didn't. Um, if I IMDb, you're like, oh, I love that dude. <laughs> uh, he was a correspondent at the time on The Daily Show. Okay. And he wrote me the greatest letter of recommendation anyone's ever gotten. And I love Dan so much on Daily Show Stationery. <laughs> so I got into USC. Wow. Uh, which is that whole thing with like, that whole payola from like people to get into USC doesn't make sense. I'm like, dude, I see GPA. I just got a recommendation from the daily show and I got into the most difficult exclusive grant program in film scoring. You're famous kids. You don't have to do this. (laughs) Like, do you not realize like you're really dumb? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I got into grad school at SC. I was very angry about it and very pissed off. Uh, That was actually where I met Michael. Okay. Was at grad school there. Uh, so yeah, I went to grad school at SC because I also didn't know what else I was going to do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then tons of things happened. We wound up starting a short-lived studio with Michael and a bunch of friends called Q6 that did really well. My friend Rich Tellerico um, was a writer on a TBS show called Frank TV. Mm. And I he got me an audition. I wound up booking the job, which was uh, life-changing for me. Uh, I recorded that Dane Cook record, Isolate Incident. And this all happened while I was at SC. I was still touring with Second City to make money. Mm. I kept almost getting kicked out of school because I was missing too many classes touring. And they were like, you can't do this. And I was like, you're charging 80000 a year. Exactly. Like, That's what I was about to to, to say. Like, it, 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 Music school is a weird place. Um, again, for you know, most people who've never been to music school, it is a weird place where... They will absolutely just like chastise you for having an actual music career while in music school. I don't get it, but that's yeah. Um, yeah, I was pretty straightforward. I don't think they liked me very much there. The half the teachers loved me, half the teachers hated me. Yeah, <laughs> because I would be very much like, and I, I'd been working professionally, so I'd be like. This seems like busy work. I have these sessions and gigs, so I can't do that. Yeah. Um, but I'll do this. <laughs> and they'd be like, excuse me? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this unless you can explain to me why this is yeah. busy work. Yeah. So. Yeah, it really bothers some, uh, like, like, I guess, educators when, like, they're, you're that student that, like, is very aware that, like, school rules are not, like, literal laws that you have to follow. And, like, literally everything, like, every school rule is, like, literally, is it is able to be changed by a human, like, basically instantly. If, like, you decide the paper's due next week, it's due next week. It's not like the DMV where it's, like, you got to get this thing renewed every year or something. like. And it still feels made up. Like, I've been on the phone with Chase a bunch because I've been having some issues with my bank account where there's a reoccurring fee for that won't go away from a mistake that it's the pay balance. It's this long thing. And every time I talk to them and what they keep telling me, it just sounds like they're making it up as they go along <laughs> where they're like, well, we had to freeze because of this, but then we'll release this many funds because of this, but then we're going to do this because of this. I'm like, why this? Are you a five year old? Like, <laughs> What's happening? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was funny. My friend, Aaron, who actually, we were, uh, from Chicago, he gave up and left LA because he couldn't take the ups and downs and meeting people who had promised to give him his wildest dreams and then block him 
block, mm-hmm. not block, but ghost him. Yeah. And you'd be like, what? Um, but we heard that they were doing a Nike commercial and they couldn't decide a composer. And a friend of ours was editing it. I won't name names for this story, but we literally just showed up with like three towers, monitors, all this stuff to the post house and be like, Hey, we're the composers. And no one questioned us. And that was how we got our first uh, composing gig. And suddenly I scored a Nike commercial, um, which was mental. But then I was, we were so stupid and we made like, you know, 30 or 45,000, something crazy, which was, you know, like making 12 million to us. But we were so dumb. We were literally like, you want any more commercials? No, we're real artists. We don't want to. We literally, Um, because (laughs) like, I want to like go back in time and like slap myself before I said that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that dude, first of all, that's fucking awesome. Um, and, and that falls in line with like, like so many people I've, I've had on this set of like, you know, found success or whatever they do, there's always, or a lot of times there's this like a moment where like, um, like where you have, you do this thing because like who else would have the audacity to do that thing? Like who, especially I guess, um, at the time, like a, like a student, like, like especially the student mentality, like not many people would have the audacity to know, to like be like, well, they don't, they're not, they haven't decided the composer and like capitalize on that and then just like be it, just show up. Well, and we brought too much gear that no one in the right mind would have brought as much stuff as we brought. Yeah. <laughs> if they weren't going to do that. Yeah. <clears throat> but that it's so, it's so insane that it's, it makes it brilliant. Like, like, cause it's also the type of thing where it's like, well, you're not like the literal director of the film or something where it's like, okay, we like, you know, obviously we know, like, it, it's, Obviously, the music uh, with any like commercial or, or movie is very important, but like it's it's kind of the perfect role where like if you show up and you really just like look the part, like no one's gonna like really look that much into it. So that's perfect, yeah. man. Oh, it's so cool. Man. <clears throat> um, so I guess. Uh, um, well, so so I, when you say like you'd slap yourself or you could go back in time for that, is it is it like a hard world to like re-enter once you I guess turn work down or? I mean, I turned it down in such a pretentious asshole oh. way <laughs> yeah. that like I didn't like get my name blacklisted yeah. from the commercial world. I've scored commercial sense, yeah. but I had all of these amazing. A-list commercial directors and production companies who were impressed with what I did, who are like, well, you're a dumbass, F off, who will never work with me again. So I didn't, again, they won't be like, oh, don't work with this person, but they would never call this person. Mm. So it was just, there was no reason to do that except that I was in my early 20s and an artist. Yeah, yeah. uh, In the bad sense of the way. Yeah, no, and, and that's, it's, of course, every everyone in music has that. Hey, some some people, some people never get out of that phase where they just take themselves way too seriously. And and it, it's not. I don't think it's a. Especially when it's like a phase you have um, when you're a younger artist, because I feel like deep down it's coming from a good place of you basically just saying you take this very seriously, but. Of course, at first it just manifests in a way that makes you come off like an asshole, and um, but that dude, that's so cool because I now like thinking about 
some of your uh, composition stuff, like one of my dreams would be to contribute something to the Curb Your Enthusiasm soundtrack. Like, it's just, it's just, it's like a, well, first of all, they, obviously there's tuba yeah. in it, but like the, the ideas and like the randomness is, it's just so cool, man. But um, <clears throat> yeah, how did you get into specifically like uh, finding the, the niche of, of uh, writing for like comedy related things? Well, I was working with Second City. Okay. And my grandmother is an actress uh, while she passed away decade ago, but she had an improv group called the Jerry Actors. Mm. <laughs> uh, and this was in the 90s before improv was cool. Yeah. And then I loved improv comedy more than anything. I loved comedy. Like even at USC when people would be like, what kind of films do you want to do? And people were like, Francis Ford Coppola, this. I'm like, I want to do all that, all that like ridiculous Will Ferrell stuff. Yeah. Like I love that over the top slapstick comedy. Like all the Elmer Bernstein scores I absolutely adore. He did Animal House, Ghostbusters, stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> and people would look at me like, what's wrong with you? Why do you want to do that? I'm like, cool, Godfather's a great movie. But, I mean, at least for me personally, I like, watched it once, maybe yeah. twice. No desire to ever watch it again in my life. Got yeah. my thing. But, you know, I could watch Zoolander any day of the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it led me, scoring a lot of comedy also led me to scoring horror. Because to me, horror and comedy are the same thing. Um, if you look at the structure of a good horror, the structure of a good comedy, the reveals, the way it plays with the audience, it's the, the only difference is the character shits themselves or gets stabbed in the face. But that like anticipation and playing with expectations of what happens, uh, it's all about structure. And to me, the hardest part about scoring horror and comedy is not the actual composition, but understanding the structure, like the film The Blue Rose that I'm working on right now, mm -hmm. the last third of the movie is very intense. And my first pass of it was almost wall-to-wall -wall music. Mm -hmm. And I went back and watched it, and it was absolutely terrible what I tried. Yeah. And, I mean, compositionally it was great, uh, not to toot my own horn. <laughs> but it's, it was so fast, so nonstop, so in your face that it actually about seven or eight minutes in as an audience member it exhausts you mm. and you just don't care anymore you're like I just hope everyone dies right now <laughs> because then the movie can end and I can go on with my life yeah. and it makes you almost um, want bad things I don't want to spoil anything that happens but it, it makes you want bad things to happen to the characters so the movie will end mm. uh, and it's a great film but my score made at least for me personally want that Yeah. and then once they started playing with like having the music cut out, having this push forward, maybe make this seem like something was going to happen that wasn't. Um, then suddenly that last scene, the last 30 minutes felt like you wanted it to be longer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it felt great. So to me, the whole thing with comedy and horror, even more than is this electronic, is this acoustic, what kind of instrumentation is this going to be? It's about figuring out the time and the place for everything. Yeah. First of all, I, I will never, I, obviously I'm kind of like uh, boiling it down, but like I, I think that's going to be in my head for a long time. Like the only difference between, or the major difference between like <laughs> horror and comedy is like someone's either shitting themselves or getting stabbed in the face. That's and, fucking brilliant. But it really is. Yeah. And I wasn't <laughs> a horror fan when I got into this industry. I've become one. Yeah. Because when horror, like I can't stand torture porn, yeah. but when horror <laughs> is really good, yeah. like you're smiling. Yeah. Um, it feels like you're telling a ghost story to your best friend. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I actually scored a great horror doc called Haunters. It's about the history of haunted houses. Oh, wow. And there's all these things about him where, especially in times like around September 11th, that's when horror had like this second life uh, that was really incredible. And also horror did really well during the um, stock market crash. Mm -hmm. And that's when all the universal horror characters came out. And it's there's something psychologically of watching people in bad situations yeah. survive yeah. that actually helps. And they've been there's been scare studies where if couples go through haunted houses while holding hands, they actually feel closer to each other afterwards. And it remaps things in the brain. Whoa. And there's something about, you know, between a pandemic and World War Three and uh, a possible civil war. As adults, we can't walk, we can't just start screaming, but <laughs> even though we desperately want to, yeah. but to go, you know, to a theater and get to like collectively scream yeah. is actually really cathartic and a helpful thing. Yeah. Man, that, you know, it's um, uh, something you, you said earlier. I don't want to forget. I, um, cause recently I was just like, um, thinking about just how much, you, you know, like music can really elevate. It's really hard. I think it's it's pretty hard to write music that will make a movie worse. But but <laughs> like like the, it the it's it is pretty amazing how if you write something that like like um like in, in my head I recently changed it to okay. There's composers to me like John Williams that if you even take away the movie like the melody and everything, like it's just so great that like the music is great by itself. And then you got something like, um, at least the best example I can think of on top of my head, Interstellar, mm -hmm. being a situation mm -hmm. where like, damn, I'm not sure if that movie could exist without that specific soundtrack. You know, so, and, and I guess when you, when you approach a, um, you know, writing for, a film, I guess, is there, maybe I'm thinking, maybe I have as a non-composer, my approach might be off, but like, are you, do you, do you consciously think of a style where it's like writing music that's just good in general, or is it for you like always like applicable to what you're seeing? Um, so for me, it's a lot of questions before I start figuring that out. My mm. first question is always, what is your budget? Mm. Because the way most films are, and I've only done one job in my entire life that was a um, where I had an artist deal where they paid me a creative fee, and then I just said, "Hey, I want this, I want this, I want this," and mm -hmm. they would say yes or no. Um, most jobs are package deals, which means I make between lunch and a quarter million dollars usually from those. Mm -hmm. That seems to be my ballpark rate, mm -hmm. um, but I pay for everything, keep what's left over. Mm -hmm. So, if I'm scoring a TV show. I will do a lot of MIDI instruments because it doesn't matter unless it's a very epic TV show, something like Game of Thrones, where every episode is like a movie. You want to work in MIDI. Mm -hmm. The turnarounds are so fast. My first TV show, I wrote all these like crazy string movements where it's like, yeah, everything's footballs. Footballs means whole notes, which means the strings barely move. Mm -hmm. They'll just sustain a chord, but I'll have like the cello slowly moving to the viola part, and then the viola slowly kind of moving down when the cello goes yeah. up, and the two violins alternating because I didn't want to just hold a pad. And I remember pulling an all-nighter to do this, and then the TV show comes out, and this it's mixed so far in the back. A, you couldn't tell that there was no reason for me to spend thousands of dollars to hire real string players. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
it was mixed so far back you couldn't tell. So for TV, MIDI, I'll do whatever sound makes sense to me. Okay. Maybe this should be orchestral. Maybe this should be mixed. Maybe this should be bluegrass. Maybe this should be this. And it winds up becoming television. I score like branding essentially mm-hmm. because even though television is scored and I'm, and I'm taking out the, this isn't like a breaking bad or a game of Thrones this is like your traditional sitcom TV show. To me, TV shows are so much about sonic branding. Uh, it's always sending in Philadelphia. Uh, yeah. you, the second starts, you know what it is. Same thing with The Office. Same thing with Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. I think a TV show is like being very clever sonic branding because um, each episode, everything goes back to square one. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want TV shows that are really take you on a journey. This is classic TV again. So it's so much kind of about refreshers about hitting transitions Mm -hmm. about telling the audience what they're watching stuff like that so for me i think a tv almost like sonic branding like a commercial a lot of the time Mm -hmm. classically speaking when it comes to a film i don't like using midi and when i say i don't like using midi i do everything in midi i mean i don't like using midi strings midi saxes Mm -hmm. midi tuba stuff like that because you know we're mixing 5.1 7.1 whatever it may be and the MIDI sounds super fake and terrible, and you can hear what it is. Yeah. So I just scored a really great indie film, Love and Not Love, and there was next to no budget. Um, he told me the budget. I'm like, I can't score this movie. And I watched the movie. I was like, damn it. This is a really good movie. I have to score it. Wow. <laughs> so essentially what I told the director, Anthony, was I can only give you two to three weeks to do this, and I can't do any notes, really, because I don't have the time. This is my overhead. There's so much time I can spend on it. But can you be here while I write the music and direct me in real time like I'm an actor? And I came up with all the themes, all the ideas for the score. And um, I'm a session player. Again, like I was saying, I played with Dylan and Billy Ray and Dion Warwick. And I play pretty much any instrument you can play with your fingers, I play. Mm-hmm. Um, my studio's mental. Like when I moved in with my girlfriend, she's like, I've you know, 30 keyboards, 20-something string instruments, and she thought I was joking. And then we moved in together, and she realized I wasn't joking. You know, B3s and Mellotrons and all that yeah. road. So the, I base, I wrote the entire score based around the instruments I could actually play. Yeah. And I'm not a great guitar player, so the songs that had guitar, and I made sure to write the music in keys that I could play guitar in, mm. where vibes, mandolin, other instruments, the keys don't matter as much. Uh, that third on the guitar really throws me every time, yeah. which is why I'm not good. So, so much of my film scoring becomes what's your budget, and then let's have a conversation about this movie. What do you want? What do I think? And then trying to write the score based around the budget. Mm. Like, um, if you told me you had X amount of money, but you want strings, and you want this, and you want this, then it just becomes a conversation between us. So it's like, okay, well, strings cost this much. Here's the amount of money that I need to survive, we could do it over five months and I could work slowly. Mm. Or if you wanted the movie done the next three weeks, that means I could only spend two weeks writing it because we have to spend this much on strings. And you wind up having a conversation with the director. Yeah. Um, and I know not every composer works that way, but this, that's how I kind of found that I like to work. Also, um, I still have not quite grown out of hating computers. <laughs> even though I, it's a love-hate relationship. So I still 
prefer, I still see myself as a musician first. Mm. So I'll buy mandolin and spend four months practicing a mandolin instead of buying a mandolin program. Wow. Um, and then my girlfriend's like, do you really need more instruments? I'm like, yes, yes, I do. I need them all. I yeah. go, when I go to music stores, I feel like I'm at a pound. Yeah. And I just want to, <laughs> want to bring them all home. I see them sitting there and I feel bad for them. And I want to bring them all home and, and I want to love them and yeah. care for them. And Oh, dude. Yeah, dude, I, I feel this, especially um, when I walk into like brass stores, I'll just be like, oh, I just, always one more, but... Dude, that that's um. There, there's so much that you just said. I'm I'm curious about, and I guess um, one I've never uh, heard that like I guess said that way. Sonic branding, like because like now thinking about it, obviously that um, very much exists. But um, that you know, I, I'm trying to think of some examples that come right to mind. Um, do you, you know the show Succession? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so Nick, Nicholas Bertel, everything he writes is just, it's so like, um, that it's such a good example of like, oh, okay, I, I, I like remember that movie and like you might just start like singing the theme song yeah. even if you're a non-musician, you know? Um, but yeah, no, it's so, it, it so, some composers are just really, really good at that. Um, that's sonic branding. That's such a cool term. Uh, and and the big thing, too, with composers is I, and musicians is I always push to never talk down the, the genre. Mm. People will talk down to like, oh, it's just a drone. Oh, it's just this. Like, yeah, Hans Zimmer did just a drone in Interstellar. Yeah. And that's the greatest drone <laughs> ever made. <laughs> where they're like, it's just one note. It's like, yeah, but you figure out how to make a note sound that epic. Yeah. And I find that when people... We all have our genres that we're pulled to. Um, I played in Billy Ray Cyrus's band for three and a half, four years, did mm-hmm. two records with him. And when I auditioned, his MD goes, wow, you're a genius musician. I'm like, oh, thanks. And he goes, can you play the song again like you give a shit? I was just like, you could hear that in my play. He's like, yeah, 100%. And honestly, when I auditioned for Billy, I was still in that phase of I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. And I was like... This music is two chord country music. It's beneath me. It's stupid. And I played with that attitude. And Billy really changed my life working with him. And I kind of realized because in school we were taught, you know, to play giant steps in all 12 keys. And if it's not all the things you are in E flat, you're a jerk and you're not a real musician. But what they never taught me is, how to play just an E chord and an A chord for six minutes straight. Mm. Uh, never speed up, never slow down. And based on your attack and your release, being able to inform, if you just soloed your part, you should be able to tell the verse, chorus, bridge, outro, double chorus, every part of it. And even if you're just doing quarter notes, yeah. based on how you attack and how you release and your dynamics and all that stuff, you should be able to hear the entire form and it should have an arc to it. Yeah. And I realized that I, they, t- they taught me how to play all the things you are in all 12 keys, mm. but they never taught me how to play quarter notes. Yeah. And they never <laughs> helped, taught me how to play quarter notes with feeling. And Billy's, uh, the majority of his audience, at least this is before the little Nas X, were is essentially lower income and he's hyper aware that 
this is people's big, most of the people who are seeing him, this is their big expenditure for the month, if not the year. Yeah. And he doesn't take himself seriously, but he takes his show seriously. Mm. And if you don't, don't take yourself seriously, but if you don't take the show seriously, mm. you are stealing from people mm. and you are an asshole and like, yeah. you're a monster. Yeah. And he, he's, um, uh, is he from Nashville? From Tennessee? I know Kentucky, Tennessee. I think. Okay. Because is his daughter, was is his daughter the one that was raised in, in Nashville? Yeah. I think? Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say that that I, I guess um, I was gonna mention Nashville because I just because I know that's a one of the music scenes that they just take performance uh, really seriously. But um, yeah, no, I mean besides that, man, I I, I totally um, and I like that, like the way you said it, like he doesn't take himself seriously, but takes the show seriously. And um, if you you know gigging with with someone like um, especially of that on that level and like a leading man. The experiences are very, very different depending on if it's that guy taking himself seriously or the show. Um, that's cool. Sounds like an awesome experience. Um, and I guess going back to the uh, composition thing, because I, I was also curious about this too. Uh, with when I guess trying to figure out budget with pieces, how often is it that like you're given as much? as they can give you versus like maybe the unfortunate reality of the people in charge of that not understanding why the music needs to be funded? Um, <clears throat> it's always... But well, the pro everyone knows how important music is. I've never met someone in film or television mm -hmm. who, who doesn't think it's the most important thing. But the problem with film is we're the last of the equation so if we're not hired at the beginning of the film and usually we're hired after the film is shot we're not it's very rare we're hired before the film is shot um and they they always go over budget mm -hmm. i've never been part of a movie or a film that hasn't gone over budget so and i've never gotten or i wrote a song there was an iron man 3 soundtrack but i've never scored a Disney or Marvel movie or something where you know they have unlimited money. Yeah. So by the time they get to us, there's always less money than they expected. Mm. And I mean, it might be like 50,000 instead of 70,000. So you're like, cool, we have a 40-piece orchestra and we don't have a 60-piece orchestra. Mm. Whatever, no, big, no biggie. But then sometimes it's... Well, where you start to have issues is when it's 10,000 instead of 15,000 or it's 15 instead of 20. And then you start making those really difficult decisions of, I want to hire uh, Eva Reistad to mix this, so that means I'm not going to hire, you know, this great. I'm not. I'm only going to have one string player multi-track multiple strings and not have a quartet. And that's when you start to have those issues. Eva's my favorite mixer ever. Mixed like the Atmos soundtrack for Dune most recently. She's next level. Wow. But like I'm literally dealing with that with with the movie I'm scoring now where I'm, I really want her. So I'm hiring uh, Stevie black to do all the strings. Who's an amazing string player instead of having like a string section. Mm -hmm. And those are the choices you start to make when things are lower budget. Yeah. That's interesting. And do they, do they, how, how much of this is a part? And I really hope the answer is a lot, but how much of this is a part of like, when you're obviously you're when you go to school and you're trying to get better at the actual music it's, itself, but zero. 
They never taught that. And my first TV show, I wound up 12 grand in debt by the time the show was done (laughs) because they never taught us. They teach you how to write the best possible music. But essentially, I love Daniel Day-Lewis. I will watch everything he's in multiple times. But he's the greatest living actor because he's allowed to be. Uh, I also think John Williams is the greatest living composer because he's allowed to be. Mm. John Williams gets infinite time and infinite budget. And by the way, I'm not knocking either of these people. I mean, they've earned Mm -hmm. what they have. They're timeless, amazing artists. But John Williams, I should say they've earned that. Where he can have, when he scores a movie, he gets to have the orchestra, the greatest orchestra in the world for as long as he wants. He gets to have the time he wants to write the arrangements. And same thing with Daniel Day-Lewis is like, cool, I'm going to go live in the wilderness (laughs) (laughs) for six months and learn how to hunt. And before I do last the Mohegan, so I know actually how to load a musket correctly. Like any of us would know how, if he was loading it correctly or not, except for (laughs) that three weird dudes in the South, probably. Um, but no one taught me how to arrange for an orchestra when I only have one hour with them Mm. based on when I have three hours with them based on when I have three days with them. Because what I will write for an orchestra will completely change. I'll be more clever. My writing as I've gotten older has become more simple and more harmonically clever. Mm. Because I don't want to write crazy virtuosic stuff because I work on lower budget films where I'll have the orchestras for three hours, two hours, whatever it may be because of budgetary constrictions. So I want to write music that I know anyone can sight read. Mm that if you have college level training and have very little experience in the studio, you'll still be able to sight read my music. Yeah. And I do that on purpose because my first few sessions were complete train wrecks because I wrote incredibly complex music and I like wrote trumpet parts around the like in certain registers and like all the stuff and they couldn't do it. Yeah. And it wasn't, I wasn't writing anything like list. Um, but it was, music that still needed people to rehearse it. And they were complete train wrecks. So I learned how to write based on the instruments and the amount of time. Like if I'm going to write something fast and virtuosic, I'm going to write around the open strings Mm. because that first piece I wrote in G sharp because I want there to be tension. I wrote an octave up and not around, you know, the lower ones and the string players couldn't do it without practicing. And I didn't get all through all the music yeah. where I should have just had it be open strings and octave down. No one cares. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. And I mean, you and I care. Right. But the audience just is hearing like the fact that it's there's that little bit of tension that's a little higher. That's not going to make or break the score. Mm-hmm. That's not going to make or break the movie. If you hear it isolated. Yeah. What I was doing sounds cooler, but it in no way affects the feel of the score mm-hmm. while you're watching that scene. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, uh, and not that we, you know, plan this at all. I mean, we're literally just having a conversation in real time, but funnily enough, like a lot of what you've said, especially on the composer end of things is like, I imagine if I were um, a composition student at SC or anywhere, like this is, this is, I mean, the fact that you, that, you know, you're saying like, this is not mentioned at all. And I believe that because that's, that's <laughs> education, but, yeah. um, that one, that's 
terrible to it, it's it's um, and i will say yeah. i i finished sc in 08 yeah so i've not been involved in university in almost 15 years yeah so things might have changed in the program in the last 15 yeah but this is yeah no that's a, that's a good point and yeah no it's um uh that to me is is uh interesting because th- over time i guess you have to you have to somehow develop a relationship between budget and your creativity in a sense that like, especially if you were not prepared for it in school. Um, cause so actually the, what the last guest that I had here, last person, um, she's a tour manager and she said that she, her class is like a, uh, uh, it's, it's modeled in a way it's like a, a DIY tour class. So she'll have, she'll, um, give them scenarios of like, all right, you have a hundred grand with this tour. You have like 3,500 with this. And I just, I I'm, imagine it would probably be helpful if like real, sim, you know, simulations were kind of ran like that for composers. Oh, it'd be great. That's, oh man, that's, <clears throat> that's crazy. Cause and I honestly love budgetary constrictions because it tells me what to write. Mm-hmm. Like if I was to do a movie and you are just like, anything it would actually be to me that's harder yeah than you saying 30,000 or yeah. 20,000 yeah because then like I start to get clever where it's like oh cool like oh something like cool and like jazzy oh man my buddy Alex is one of the most amazing tenor players maybe I'll write like a sax concerto around this and <laughs> I feel like trying to crack it with that budgetary constriction winds up actually making me feel more creative and more like an artist. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good point. I mean, it's, um, I guess having unlimited, uh, resources and time. Um, yeah, it's so, it's so, and, it, and a lot more is on you in that situation because it's like, Oh, well, let's just see what your brain can come up with, which can be a bittersweet experience for sure. That's yeah. That's really interesting. Oh, and one other arranging thing is, um, I'm a huge fan of Ellington's approach mm. where Ellington liked to write to the player more than the instrument. So I like to have relationships with, and again, I'm a player too. So I like having relationships with players and write music based on what I know people will do. Oh. Because to me, it's so much more fun to bring in like for the score, I'm bringing Brian Viglione, who's drummer from Dresden Dolls and Nine Inch Nails for the score. Mm. And my buddy Jake Leckie is going to be playing bass, who's one of the most incredible bass players. And I'm, writing a lot of my parts to them Mm -hmm. and knowing their energy and their vibe because I want to feel so unique. Yeah. Oh man. See, and this is, this is why having a composer who also plays and like really plays, not just like, Oh, I used to play. Like, uh, it's so cool. Cause, um, similar to, similar to Michael, like, um, um, actually we've both been working on a project, um, with him and, uh, you know, so him writing like the tuba and violin parts and then like as we've like we've recorded it and re-recorded a bunch of times and then like I get but having the privilege to be able for like him to kind of hear and one care about it and then like also make a note of like how we play um, and because then like and then going back and like comparing that first recording to like one of the more recent ones of like hearing um like just like our personal, it makes such a big difference on like, like once you like rewrite a little bit, 
for that specific person. Yeah. God, it makes such a big difference. Um, it's really cool, man. Here, I'm just you know, keeping an eye on the, the oh, time. Yeah. But and I like I still try to play shows once a week. Mm-hmm. And I just played the Tomorrow Show, which is a midnight com- midnight to three a.m. comedy variety show on Saturday, and I'll play Harvard and Stone with um, my band Radio King next week, um, or name TBD. And but to me, it's like I have to play once a week because I want to stay in the scene. I need to stay sharp. I need to still feel like a musician, even mm-hmm. if I'm working twenty hour days, overwhelmed on these projects. Yeah. I still need to play and be in the scene and like see what's happening I mean, the new players like music's the thing i'm greediest for yeah um i will constantly l- lose money on scores um which like I, I i will just like be like i need this amount of money to live and then i become like a like an addict <laughs> i get into the score and i'm just like okay do i really need to spend that much money on food well, gas, I'm not really driving <laughs> everywhere. And when I'm not scoring a film, I have money. Yeah. And when I'm scoring a film, I'm completely broke. <laughs> and all my cards are maxed out because it's half up front, half on delivery. Yeah. And then as a musician who's always, you know, you want to pay people when they do the job and not net 30, net 60. Right. Um, because we do professions where oftentimes we don't know if we're going to make rent this month. You just have to have faith that you will. So I have to pay my musicians when I hire them. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, and then half up front, half on delivery. You're doing a movie for 60K. You don't have 30,000 saved. Yeah. So suddenly you're just like maxed out on everything and broke. So all my friends are always confused with like, you're doing this huge film. How are you so broke? It's like, you're not working. How do you have so much money? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's tough in that. And again, it's just, um, it's, I have so much respect for uh, composers or and gained so much um, as I like got out of school just because um, out of all of us, you know, the, the instrumentalists, everyone else, like out of all of us composers, I think are, are the ones who have to just randomly step up and like somehow become like really good businessmen. Um, and, you know, I mean, we have to do that in a way like, you know, we, we got to set up our website and do that, but it's all just for us. But I think when you're then dealing with other people, their time, their money and stuff. Um, yeah. You know, so, so to go, I think to, to go from like a, just this dream of like, I want to make music to then like basically like <laughs> being like a business owner. And it's funny because I feel like I work for free mm. and I'm paid for getting the job mm. I, and I'm paid for going to the job Yeah, because I, I'm lazy. I could not, the amount of hours I work on a film score for the amount of money I do, I would never do for any <laughs> other yeah. job. Yeah, I feel that, man. Um, I can sit and write music and practice for 20 hours. Mm. And it feels like 20 minutes have passed, and I've had the best day ever. Yeah. But if this was, you know, working in the other job. <laughs> yeah, I feel that, man. Yeah, you got to – that. that's that's the big one for me, especially, like, I've been saying a lot lately. It's just like, man, what are you – whatever you're willing to do for free – go out there and like somehow just try to find a way to make a bunch of money doing it. You well, know? but also, well, two things, Hey, you play an instrument where you have to play every day or you're, Oh yeah. You lose it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a big thing. Like literally like the one day and sometimes you need that break, but even though you need it, it's still unforgiving. <laughs> so it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beast. Cause like obviously the body is just not designed to like 
hold on to like the skills that you need to just like do some shit like this so or any instrument really um but anyway man i guess uh before we because i know uh, we're basically out but you know um last time i asked of course is just like where can do you is there anywhere that you uh play pretty consistently um anything coming up like maybe people can go to well first question is when does this podcast come out <laughs> oh, oh it'll actually be out next week oh yeah uh well let me look at my calendar and i can let let you all know yeah um and i'll post it too in the the uh description and on instagram cool uh i am playing um at El Cid on the 28th for a show called Uncabaret, which is an amazing show i'm mm-hmm. subbing for my friend mitch kaplan uh, killing piano player who's done it for years. Uncabaret is a comedy storytelling show mm-hmm. that's kind of changed the old comedy scene. Um, I got to play in the band when we did it at um, the Ace uh, the Ace Hotel. It's been on the cover of LA Weekly. It's just an amazing comedy storytelling show. And then I uh, started a new band with um, my buddy Adam Silvestri, who just moved here from New York, and Brian Viglione from Dresden Dolls, Radiator King. Or, sorry, Dresden Dolls and uh, Nine Snails. Oh, okay. uh, we're calling the band Radiator King for the moment, but it's probably going to change. But we're playing Harvard and Stone May 29th. Um, and that's a free show. Uh, I know that um, El Cid costs money to go to. Not sure what that is. I scored a film called The Sound of Violence, mm. which was in theaters last year. It's now on uh, Hulu, I believe, um, which is a great movie about a woman who murders and records the murders and uses them in her music. Uh, it stars uh, Jasmine Savoy Brown, who was in the last Scream movie. She was one of the twins. Okay. I don't know if you saw that one. No, no, I, I didn't. And then um, uh, The Blue Rose, which is this amazingly epic film I'm working on, is should be done the next month or so and then festival submissions and it should be out in theaters early next year which i'm pretty excited about nice dude well this is awesome man um yeah you got a lot coming up we can look forward to and um but yeah man it's always a treat for me again just to um especially composers you guys have such a a a weird reality (laughs) and it's always cool to dive into um but yeah, man, I, I appreciate your time for this. Yeah, and I mean, the big thing is if anyone wants to do this job, just you can do it. There's enough room and enough space for everybody. Mm. Um, the only advice I have is don't give yourself a way out. Mm. Like all the people who I know who made it didn't have a way out. They didn't have an escape plan. Yeah. <laughs> they just had to fight through because it will be terrible. It will be devastating and heartbreaking at times. But not giving yourself a way out is just how you figure it out. Yeah, and I, I especially that um, that there, there's you know room for. I, I really like that mentality because that especially up and coming and anything, you'll either you'll always kind of meet people that lean towards uh, you know one or the other um, in terms of like you know you'll meet your welcoming kind people and then people that just. Like, you would think so, that there's only one thing left. Oh, I got to tell one story before I go. Yeah. Um, I, I uh, was a musical director, Robert Townsend, if you know him. Uh, he did a pilot, and I was auditioning against Eben Schletter, who, um, anyone, a uh, musician who could also act and be in the band. Eben Schletter was a hero of mine growing up. He wrote the music for uh, Mr. Show and SpongeBob SquarePants and all kinds of great things. And I'm auditioning against Eben, and I brought my vibraphone, but I didn't bring a keyboard. And 
they asked if I played piano. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't think to bring Wi-Fi. You want vibes. And Evan, who I'm auditioning against, who's in the room, said, use my keyboard. I'm like, mm. are you serious? I'm auditioning against you. And Evan's like, you're, I'm 20 years older than you. I have a different vibe, different everything. If they want you, they don't want me. Wow. If they want me, they didn't want you. It's like we're not competition for each other. Um, and there's this whole thing about people like holding on to their contacts. And Evan's from up north and grew up with, you know, Odenkirk and Cross and all those people. So, and even though I've gone to meet them and work with them, Eben's their peer. They're going to want to work with Eben. They're not mm. going to want to work with me. Yeah. Um, just like my peers want to work with me and not Eben because you want to work with your peers. You want to work on your with your contemporaries. If John Williams couldn't work on the next Spielberg film, Spielberg wouldn't call me to work on it. He would call another one of his contemporaries. And yeah. there are those moments where you do want to work with this person or that person, but overall you always want to work with your contemporaries and there's more jobs than have ever before. There's more networks, there's more content, there's more films being made. The people who um, used to make a living who aren't making a living now are the ones who are still doing things the way it was done three years ago or mm. two or even six months ago. Mm. As long as you're willing to kind of go with the flow, you will like, and not saying you're not going to struggle and might not take a minute mm. And you, we've all had to have day jobs while we try to figure this out. But you'll find your peers and you'll find your contemporaries. Yeah. Well, dude, I, uh, man, I, I think you've, you've dropped so many uh, <laughs> uh, nuggets uh, that, you know, I think for anyone who is listening to this uh, that's a young composer, just even just, I think a lot of what you said is uh, helpful to any young person just trying to rise in their whatever world they're in um, is gonna, all going to be super helpful so thank you man yeah and uh burke.alexander on instagram alexanderburke.com is my website uh check out the corbin jones episode this podcast and also the michael malo who are two of my favorite composers and arrangers as well yeah yeah dude well man it's um appreciate you man and for anyone uh you know listening of course as always um you know thank you for making it to the end um appreciate you this is a song called life and we're out peace